A few years ago, my friends Mark, Colby, and I, we took our cameras and we traveled to Arkansas to tackle Big Bluff and its Narrow Goat Trail. Now, if you haven't had the opportunity to explore this trail, it's a beautiful sight to see. At 550 feet tall, Big Bluff has the distinction of being the tallest sheer bluff face found between the Rocky and Appalachian Mountains. It takes about four to five hours to complete the round trip hike, and there are some incredible sights to see. Big Bluff provides the best views of the Buffalo River, but one of the great privileges of being out on Big Bluff is the chance to see the large, aged junipers that somehow manage to grow along the trail's edge. Some of these trees have been dated to over 800 years old by the National Park Service, making this a great place for a photo opportunity, but more importantly, a place to pause and to thank the Lord for these tenacious, gnarled sentinels as they watch over the bluff and the river. Now, my friend Mark was about to release an album of music, so he had Colby and I capture the video and photos at Big Bluff to complement his big release. Sounds great, right? <laughs> well, what seemed to be a fantastic adventure turned into one of the most stressful times that I have had to date. Now, allow me to read the safety considerations for the goat trail on Big Bluff for a moment. This is not a place for folks with vertigo or dislike of heights, which is understandable. It's a pretty high place. It's not a place for beer fest or any other substance that can alter your balance and or judgment. It's not a place for young children. And it's not a place for older kids or adults with a penchant for risk-taking or horseplay. Now, can you guess which one of these fit the bill for my friend Mark? <laughs> this man seriously had a death wish. So you remember those amazing trees that I mentioned earlier? At every opportunity, Mark would find a way to hang upside down over the edge on one of those trees. And when Colby and I were literally hugging the side of the mountain to walk the narrow parts of the trail, Mark was prancing like a gazelle. <laughs> and any large uh, rock formation that was protruding from the side of the mountain, Mark would find a way to end at the end of that, and he would sit down dangle his feet over and be like, look at me guys. Just, he's just a nuts guy. And the whole time I'm capturing these moments thinking to myself, Colby and I are documenting the death of a friend. <laughs> well, thankfully we all returned safely to our vehicle at the end of the day, capturing some fun yet frightening moments. But this is not always the case for people navigating dangerous terrain. You see, since 1870, almost a thousand people have died at Grand Canyon, most by plane and helicopter crashes. But each year, people fall to their death because they fail to heed the warnings to avoid the edges of the canyon. For example, in 1992, a 38-year-old father jokingly tried to frighten his teenage daughter by leaping onto a guard wall. He flailed his arms as he pretended to lose his balance, and then he comically fell on the canyon onto a ledge that he assumed was safe. But sadly, after ignoring numerous warning signs, he lost his footing and he fell 400 feet into the void below. In 2012, an 18-year-old woman who was hiking on the North Rim Trail decided to venture off the beaten path to have her picture taken at a spot known as Inspiration Point. And then she sat down on the ledge of the 1,500-foot deep canyon. The rocks gave way, and she plummeted to her death. These deaths were not just tragic. They were also avoidable. And yet many of us approach sin and eternity similarly to how people approach the edge of a canyon. We ask, how close can I get without crossing the line? We avoid God's warning signs and then edge right up to disaster, confident that we, unlike other people, can avoid the crash. 
we have a false sense of security. Now, Jesus gives us a warning for everyone to listen to, but most will ignore him to their own peril. So we're going to go to our text today. Listen to Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Here's verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. With these words, Jesus has brought the crowd listening to his Sermon on the Mount to a point of decision. They have to to make a choice. This is an either-or choice. There's no middle road. We see this either-or choice by Jesus' description of the two gates, which are narrow and wide, the two roads, which are easy, broad, hard, narrow, two destinations. You have destruction and life, the two crowds, the, the many that lead to destruction, the few to life. God is always forcing people to choose to follow him or to walk away from him. Now, we see this also in Psalm 1. People can choose to take the way of righteousness or the way of the wicked. In Proverbs, these riddle-like sayings often contrast the paths of uprightness with the way of evil. We see this in Proverbs 2, verses 12 through 15. Now think of how God confronted the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 30. God said in verse 15, See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. And then verse 19, Now choose life so that you and your children may live. Then there's Joshua, who followed Moses as the leader of the people of Israel as they entered the promised land. In Joshua 24, 15, he says, If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. God told Jeremiah in Jeremiah 21.8, Tell the people, this is what the Lord says. See, I am setting before you the way of life and the way of death. An OT passage that is most relevant to the Sermon on the Mount is in Deuteronomy 26. Moses has just left his meeting with God on Mount Sinai, where he received the Ten Commandments and the Law of God. Moses read the law to the Israelites, and having heard what the Lord commanded of Israel, with one voice the crowd of Israelites say, Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Exodus 24.3 At Mount Sinai, They choose life with God. Deuteronomy 26, verses 16 through 19, retells this event. The Lord your God commands you this day to follow these decrees and laws. Carefully observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared this day that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in obedience to him, that you will keep his decrees, commands, and laws that you will listen to him. And the Lord has declared this day that you are his people, his treasured possession as he promised, and that you are to keep all his commands. He has declared that he will set you in praise, fame, and honor high above all the nations that he has made, and that you will be a holy people to the Lord your God as he promised. That is how we are to look at Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Like Moses, Jesus is at a mountain taking on the role of teacher, 
the role of lawgiver. His teaching is pointing to life and the kingdom of God, building on what Moses originally told Israel. Now in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus is asking his disciples and the crowd to choose what path will you take? The easy path that many will take, which leads to destruction, or the hard path that few will take, which leads to life. Now, isn't that interesting? Jesus is calling his disciples to do what the Israelites failed to do. Choose life that comes from obedience to God's word, the righteous life. Now, let's get back to our text. Now, Jesus calls the crowd to enter the narrow gate, to the narrow path, or the wide gate, to the wide path. And for a long time, I thought Jesus was the gate. You know, the way that he is the door in John, uh, John 10, 7. Um, but when I look at this verse, considering all that Jesus has taught in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm not sure that that's really the case. So let me explain. In Scripture... The Bible metaphorically depicts the commandments of God as a path through life. We see this in Deuteronomy 5.33, which says, You shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live. Proverbs 2.20, Walk in the way of good men and keep to the paths of the righteous. Proverbs 10.17, He is on the path of life who heeds instruction. King Jesus uses this biblical path metaphor to represent his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. Living the Sermon on the Mount is how a disciple stays on the straight and narrow path to the kingdom, which is to have righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, without which a disciple will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.20 The narrow path is for those who seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Matthew 6.33, which leads to life. So I think the gate to the narrow path is the Sermon on the Mount itself. Now capture the image here. <clears throat> the wide path is easy for everyone to walk. If you think of a wide path as a 12-lane highway, when a road is that wide, even a semi with a wide load can travel it easily. On the wide road, nothing needs to be left behind. Author John Stott, he writes on the wide road, There is plenty of room on it for diversity of opinions and laxity of morals. It is the road of tolerance and permissiveness. It has no curbs, no boundaries of either thought or conduct. Travelers on this road follow their own inclinations, that is, the desires of the human heart in all of its fallenness. Superficiality, self-love, hypocrisy, mechanical religion, false ambition, overcritical spirit. These things do not have to be learned or cultivated. This is what makes the wide road so easy. It takes no effort to walk the wide road. And I think it's safe to say that we are all familiar with the wide road. But what about the narrow road? See, the narrow road has boundaries. There are limitations to what Christians are to believe and how they are to live. In fact, what makes the road so narrow is God's revelation. In this case, the curb is set by King Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. Now, as Jesus explains what he expects of his disciples in in his sermon, do you feel the narrowness? Uh, Here are Jesus' expectations. Having the character of the Beatitudes, which we're familiar with from weeks past. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, uh, those who are meek, 
those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, uh, the merciful, the pure of heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted. Being courageous to be salt and light is something else that Jesus is telling us. You know, following Jesus's radical way about murder and anger, adultery, lust and divorce, truth telling, mercy over revenge, loving enemies, having proper motives for good deeds, pursuing the kingdom of God's justice instead of fortunes and fame. And it involves not damning the others and trusting that God is good. This is the narrow gate. The King Jesus teaches. Jesus knows that few of his disciples will choose to live out his sermon. If the narrow gate and path that leads to life is living, what's your reaction to that? If I were to guess, few, if any, have much confidence to do that. Maybe it's because of the anger we wrestle with. Maybe it's the lust that plagues us. The fear that keeps us from being courageous. Maybe it's the difficult uh, way to unlearn being critical of others. Our pride that hinders us from being meek. Are we disqualified from the narrow path? I mean, as I look through that list myself, I, I would think I'm disqualified. But the good news is that you're not. You're not disqualified. Let's go back to the previous verses in Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. This passage is often used in evangelistic sermons, calling people to accept Jesus as their Savior, or as it relates to prayer and how to be persistent. But there is an understanding of this text that may be more meaningful and relevant to the Sermon on the Mount. The question we need to ask ourselves is what? What are the disciples of Jesus to persistently ask, seek, and knock for? Since the words of King Jesus are after his teachings on kingdom life in Matthew 5 and 6, Jesus is telling his disciples to persistently pray, and they can live the Beatitudes persistently pray that they can live a life of righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. Jesus knows we cannot live the Sermon on the Mount without God's grace. Jesus is telling us how to pray for the character of the kingdom in our lives. Prayer is necessary for living out the teaching of King Jesus. And that's our challenge moving forward. You should see a chart on the screen. This chart was created as a way to help you structure your prayer time through the Sermon on the Mount. When you're ready to begin this four-week exercise, I invite you to do these four things. Number one, read. Read the verses slowly and prayerfully several times, out loud if possible, taking in the words and allowing them to sink in. And then write down any word or phrases that seem to stand out. Number two, I'd like you to reflect. Now begin to think about the words or phrases that stood out to you. Come in faith with the expectation that the Lord will guide you in listening to him. John 10 verses 27 through 28. Ask him a question such as, why are you drawing my attention to this? You can also think about the passage through the eyes of Matthew, Jesus, the disciples, the Pharisees, or the crowd. What insight is God giving you? Number three, respond in prayer. 
Prayer is a two-way conversation with the Lord. Respond from your heart to what He has been revealing to you through this section of the Sermon on the Mount, especially taking time to listen to what we may be saying or what, what He may be saying to you pers- personally. You may want to write out your prayer to God and anything He draws your attention to. Number four, rest. At any time when you begin to sense the presence of the Lord, stop any mental effort that you are making and just rest in and enjoy his presence. And at the end of each prayer session, ask yourself this question. How is God calling me to act in response to what he has shown me? Begin praying the Sermon on the Mount to help you listen to the voice of Jesus, to help you intentionally live the Sermon on the Mount so that you may be transformed by King Jesus and learn to walk the narrow path that leads to life.